Welcome back to another episode of Consciously Clueless, the podcast that teaches you how to live a healthier lifestyle that makes you and the planet happier. The world is changing quickly. Sometimes it feels like you can't keep up. I hear you. You want to make the world a better place. You care, but you don't know where to start. You know taking care of yourself is important, but how? I get it. I have a history of diving into a new endeavor, seeking perfection, and quickly feeling like I failed. Whether it was going vegan or learning how to recycle more, I wish I had guidance to keep me on track and not overwhelmed. I can't lie, the world needs your help. But it doesn't need you to be perfect. This podcast is here to help. Here we go. Today I talk with Natalia De Prakayasa, the vegan publisher. Here we go. You had to put yourself on a spectrum from clueless to conscious. What would that look like for you? Where do you feel today? Whatever that means for you. I love this question. I would say I am consciously clueless right now. That's <laughs> perfect think, that you're on the podcast. Yeah, I am consciously clueless. I mean, I think it's something that's without getting too deep straight away, Carly, let's just get to know each other, but like but I don't <laughs> go too deep straight away. But yeah, I think one of the biggest sort of defining things in my life is being okay with not knowing and understanding that you're never going to know everything about everything there is to know mm-hmm. about everything on this planet. It's You're going to die well before you get anywhere close to knowing that and being okay with it and seeing it as a good thing. Right. Uh, so yeah, I think I think as a publisher, I do this with my clients where they worry about they're in the middle of writing a book. And some of these people that I'm working with are such experts, Carly, like really amazing people. Top of the game. It, top of, it really are. Mm-hmm. And yes, at some point in the process of helping them plan and write their books, they will get the dreaded imposter syndrome. They've met somebody who knows more about them on this particular subject or has been around for longer than them or has more qualifications than them or whatever arbitrary thing that they're using to bash themselves over the heads with basically right and I'd have to coach them through that and one of the key tools I use is this idea of being consciously clueless and knowing that you're never going to know everything there is to know about everything on your subject literally there's always going to be somebody else who knows more than you and being okay with that but understanding that the expertise you do have there's a ton of people who don't even have that so it's your duty to pass that what you do know onto other people instead of worrying about this magical mythical time when you're going to know everything there is about there is to know about everything that's never going to happen and then you're never going to give back to anybody which is a terrible way to live really if you think about it right that got very quickly didn't it I I was I mean I'm so here for it that is perfect and I love that because it's so it's one of those situations where when we take ourselves out of the equation, we're like, yeah, nobody knows everything. But then you get this expectation on yourself, like you're the one suddenly who's going to do that. And it's, I don't expect that of other people. No, but you do it for yourself. And so if I just get to that, if I get that qualification, if I just get to that level of expertise, or if I've just been around, if I get to the 10th year and I've been in this for 10 years, then I'm good enough. And so who's telling you those things? You right. are. Nobody else is measuring you on those right. things. So let's get into, you mentioned that you are a publisher. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into that world? Oh, gosh, we, we haven't a whole day to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll, I'll give you the abridged version. So I'm a former journalist. I've always loved writing. That was in the blood. Ever since I was a kid, I loved writing and got into journalism. Then I moved into copywriting and content writing for a number of businesses around the world. And then a client of mine asked me to write a book. And I thought, what the hell? I've never written a book before. Why are you asking me to write a book? And he said, I could hire a ghostwriter. But then I'll have to spend ages getting them to understand my brand and the way that I speak. And yeah. you've been my copywriter for two years. I'd rather you do it. So you gave me a bunch of money that I couldn't say no to. Didn't give me a deadline. Said you take as long as you want. So I'm thinking, oh my god, this is amazing. Loads Does this guy have a friend with another business that needs help? I know exactly. I was like, so you give me a load of money and you don't even give me a deadline. I'm so happy. Right. Uh, nine months later, I'm about to kill myself because it's that painful writing this book. No one's Ugh. explained to me how to do it. I got into writing a book in the same way most people write their first book, which is you think you write your book in the way that you read it from beginning yeah. to end. Yep. That's, by the way, the worst way to write a book. Yep. But I didn't know that. 
So I got overwhelmed. I forgot what I'd already written. So that I was now repeating myself. Sometimes I was referring to things that I didn't put in the book. So it doesn't make sense. New ideas have come in, but now it doesn't fit with what I've already written. So I now need to rewrite a bunch of stuff to make that thing now fit. It's just so overwhelming. And the only reason I carried on was because I'd spent all of his money. I couldn't give him a refund. So I, was <laughs> I know, I was stuck writing this goddamn book. And I'm like, oh, I wasn't sensible. I went and spent all of this money and had a great time spending it. Uh, and I didn't do the sensible thing and put it into a savings account. I love um, your honesty so much. It's so true. And it's really strange now looking back and realizing, thank God I wasn't sensible because I wouldn't be doing what I do now mm. if I was able to give him a refund. So a real sort of sliding doors moment in my life there. But I had to carry on. Another nine months. It took me 18 painful months to write this book. Finally did it. The book became a bestseller. So he then went and told a bunch of people. I'm thinking, oh, great. Now I've got more books to write. So then I ended up writing seven books as a ghostwriter. But the difference was the first one took me 18 painful months. Right. The seventh one took me five weeks to plan and write. Damn. And that's when I thought, okay, I've done something so often that I've unwittingly created a structure or a formula. Why don't I just show people this formula? And then they can go and write their own books because there's only so many books I'm willing to write. Because you're like, I'm tired. I can't write y'all's book forever. Exactly. And there's only what, even at at top speed, I probably will only want to write 10 or 11 in a year. I probably wouldn't even want to do that, to be honest. Right. But if I can show people how to do it themselves, I can help hundreds, thousands of people Mm -hmm. write books. So that's how I came into helping people write books. And then publishing, when I became an author, I went through torture all over again. So this time, a different kind of torture. The first type of torture was when I started, wrote my first book as a ghostwriter, no structure. By the time I wrote my own book as an author, I did it in about three weeks. Great. Then I thought, okay, the next bit is editing, design, et cetera, et cetera. As a ghostwriter, I never saw any of that because it's not my job. You hand over your manuscript, you get paid, you run off to the sunset like I normally did, booked a nice holiday on some tropical island somewhere, went and had a load of mojitos. And I didn't see what happened after that. The next thing I knew was several months later, I'd get a message from my client saying, hey, the book's come out and I'll see you on Amazon or I'll see you in a bookstore. I didn't see the process. Right. So I just thought we just hand it over to an editor and a designer. Oh, hell no. You have to manage these people. It's like having another job or another business for about six to 12 months. Right. And I, I had a terrible editor the first time around who completely messed up my book because I didn't know what a good editor was. This person right. had lots of great reviews, had a flashy website. I thought, okay. Now I know what it takes to be a good editor. It's not a flashy website and loads of your friends just leaving you reviews. (laughs) Um, So I went through that hell. I went through a second round of hell becoming an author. So my goal as a publisher is to take all that away from people. Give them a structure so they can write a book and then manage the whole editing, design, formatting process so they don't have to. So that's how I, I got into it. I, t- I tried to give you a short version there. Of, well, that was great. That was great. I love that what you're doing, it seems, is giving people the ability to share their message without yeah. getting lost in it, right? Because that so how many people give up writing a book? Exactly. And this, I mean, I was just speaking to a gentleman just literally half an hour ago, um, and he's now going to be writing a book from, from January onwards. So he's writing a book in 2024 with me. And one of the key reasons he wanted to work with me is a message that I put out all over my social media, which is the sad thing is it's the egotistical people in this world that have the loudest voice because they're so driven by their ego they will get their voice out there in terms of books, in terms of keynote speaking, et cetera, et cetera. But the people we really need to hear from, vegans, plant-based businesses, ethical business owners, sustainability practitioners, environmentalists, B Corp founders, these are the people, social entrepreneurs, these are the people we really need to hear from. But they're so busy, focused on doing good, and then they think about writing a book to get more visibility on their message and their mission. But then... They're hampered by things like no structure, no understanding of how to how, what what it takes to be a good editor, a good designer, and then they give up. So the voices we need to hear 
yeah. we don't hear and we hear the egotistical voices. And my goal is to shine light on the people we need to be listening to as opposed to the ones I'm talking about, people like Gary Vayner. I'm sure they're lovely people, but I don't really need to hear their voices again and again, to be honest. I'm tired of I, I First of all, your energy is beautiful. And <laughs> I love your ability to be like, yeah, these are the facts. This is like, this yeah. is what we're doing here, folks. So I just, what a, like, what a refreshing energy. But I love what you're saying because it's similar to why I want to coach people in living more consciously Because how many people do we know want to go vegan or live more sustainably, but then they Google it and it's shit. That's overwhelming. This person's telling me this. This person's telling me to go raw vegan. This person's telling me to live zero waste and I can only fit all my trash (laughs) in a jar. Everyone's screw that. I'm just going to do nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's almost like you're going down a rabbit hole, isn't it? And you just think, wow, this hole just goes on for so long. I'm not sure if I want to try it. But instead of being curious and just saying, it's okay, I can't be perfect straight away. It's going back to what we were talking about before, being consciously clueless. Yep. You don't have to, there seems to be this need to choose between one or the other. Either I need to remain blissful in my cluelessness, or maybe I've just created it. I love it. Um, or you have to be completely 100% conscious. And it's like, you're never going to be 100% conscious. I think that's called nirvana. Yeah. I think that happens to only a handful of us when we die. So it's not really something that is achievable for most of us. And we shouldn't be trying to use that as a stick to measure ourselves against, but instead being consciously clueless, just saying, I'm learning more every single day. I'm getting better every single day. And I'm going to die getting better. I'm never going to achieve perfection, but that's cool. Mm -hmm. As long as I'm on my way, that is surely better than just being completely clueless. And that actually relieves some of the pressure. Yeah. Oh, wait, I get to do the best I can. Yeah. And I get to mess up and go, oops, that was wrong. I'll do better next time. Exactly. And not quit because of the mess up, which I'm sure you've had people with publishing want to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've worked with people who've even, I had one lady who published a book with me this time last year, and she wrote a book by herself 20 years ago and hated it. She just about managed to do it and publish it. But she hates the process so much that she ended up hating a book, which meant that she didn't leverage it properly. She didn't market it. So what's the point? And then she spent 20 years knowing that she wanted to write a second book, but putting it off because Mm. of perfectionism. Oh, it's not going to be right. It's going to be hell like the first time. And then only when she found me, just let's just get this out of you and have a completely different viewpoint in that good is good enough. Let's just get what you know out. Yeah. And that relieves so much ple- uh, pressure for her as well. Yeah. And it, it just feels nice to know that you can go into something. And if per- if you've let go of perfection as the goal, turns out things can actually be fun. <laughs> yeah. I remember reading someone, it's like, who, what would we do and who would we be if there was no such thing as failure? And it makes you think, doesn't it? If you just pretend there's no such thing as failure, but then it's, just know it's going to happen. Be like, it's okay to fail. Imagine the things that we would take a chance on if it was okay to fail, if we allowed ourselves to fail. Mm, I like that. That's a, that does make you think about that question or the things that I'm sure listeners, there's a few things coming up where you're like, oh, I've not tried that because Mm -hmm. I might fail. Exactly. Many aspects of our life. So you mentioned it before with sustainability and B Corp and vegan behind you, there is a vegan publisher sign. Let's talk a little bit about veganism and how that came into your life. Again, came crashing into my life by accident. Like the story of my life, to be honest, Carly. No, it didn't just happen to me and I just go with it. I just say, okay, what does this mean? My family adopted uh, a cat from our local shelter back in 2010. I'm going to be straight up with you, Carly. I didn't want her. Like yeah. I was just another family that had pets. We just didn't do that that sort of thing. I just thought, oh my God, there's going to be fur everywhere. I was right. There was fur everywhere in places that you don't even understand how it gets you. <laughs> like you'll make a cup of tea and you'll find a fur floating. You're, how did you even, the cat's no way even in the house. The cat's outside. How has this fur managed to get into my It'll cup of tea? It'll never go away. I have no idea. Like it literally it just gets everywhere. So I wasn't very happy, but I was vetoed. I was the only one that said no. Everyone else in my family were gung-ho for it. So I was like, okay. So this cat turns up, not really happy. And then within a few weeks, I just fell in love with her. But what really just, I think because I'd never been, I did, we didn't have a family dog or a family cat growing up. So 
it was new. Yeah, I, I guess we easily thought of animals as quite dumb and they're not really sentient. They don't really know what's going on. And then just going down that rabbit hole and realizing we need to understand that. We need to believe that because if we actually believe that animals think the way we do, mm-hmm. I mean, they may not have the higher levels of intelligence. They don't sit there thinking about God, for example, whether God exists or they don't do that. But the basic things such as the need to have family, the need to live a life, need to love their their kids, need to have friendships, have a tribe. They have all of those things that we do. If we actually believe that, then we couldn't do all the awful things we we did to them. The reason we are able to do the things we do to them is this belief that they don't really know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So then I carried on that thought process and I couldn't let it go. And I started to research levels of sentience in different animals. And then the horrifying reason, finding out that cats don't even make it into the top 10, I don't think. And we eat some of the more intelligent ones. Pigs are more intelligent than dogs, Mm -hmm. but we eat them. Octopus is very intelligent. We eat them. Rats are more intelligent than cats, but we test yeah. on them. We eradicate them as vermin. But it just things that, and it just, I started to, it made me go back into my past. And I've, I grew up in a, a, a part of the UK in England, which is very white. So, mm. like in London, is very cosmopolitan. There's other cities like Manchester and Birmingham, are very cosmopolitan. But where I grew up in Newcastle, um, when I was growing up, there was literally no other non-white family for about a 10-mile radius. So I grew up with just a sea of white faces and I was made to feel different and that I didn't belong and judged straight away. And I started to draw parallels to that, how we segregate human beings into colour and race and gender and sexual orientation and all of these things. And they're arbitrary. They're none of it actually, if you look into it, if you speak to a biologist... I do have a couple of biologist friends. They'll say it's all arbitrary. None of it. Race doesn't even exist. Gender is a spectrum. It doesn't actually exist as male or female. If you speak to a biologist, they will tell you straight away, oh, it's all utter nonsense. Like it's all words. It's all things we've made up. Yeah, we've created these boxes and then we throw people into these boxes. And I start to draw parallels to that and what we do with animals. And it's, it is my belief now that we will never, ever be able to get rid of racism and misogyny and homophobia and any of these things until we get rid of the way we box up animals. That's the building block. If we stop boxing up animals into pets, food, test subjects, hunting, if we stop doing that, then we start to dismantle the way we box up human beings as well. And wow. we'll never be able to get rid of that if we don't do that at that bottom layer Mm -hmm. so that's started it took me I'll be honest it took me two years I did that thing that most people do was you get scared what you said before about scared of even starting because it's so much so you just think it'll be better if I just don't start at all so I did I did stupid things for the first two years I did things like oh I'll just go to humane farms we all have to slowly go through those phases. You no, got it. So we don't I did all that. have to. We don't all. A lot of people go overnight. But I also did the same thing where I'm like, okay, I can make better choices. And yeah, I make more you- informed choices. I'll go to humane farms. Or I, I won't eat animals, but I'll eat fish. Because obviously fish don't think. And don't I did that. I did. That was the last thing. That was the last thing I gave up. I'm also in a a small town in like Northern Minnesota in the States right next to Canada. So it's like hunting, fishing is the lay of the land. So it was was cultural too. Yeah. A lot of it is a lot of animal agriculture seeped its, its talons into us in so many different ways that it is part of culture. And I think sometimes when you, it's hard, you have these awakenings but then you have these barriers put up because people f- take it personally, especially coming from an Indian background. Food is a big thing for us. More so in the West, I tend to find that food is a big thing, but it tends to be in specific times of the year. So Thanksgiving or Christmas, food is a big thing. But the rest of the time, the West is more focused around alcohol. That team tends to be 100%. The, the thing that brings people together. Whereas in Asian societies and definitely in Indian society, it's not so much alcohol. It's more to do with food yep. every day. So it's very yeah. difficult when you decide that you're going to go vegan because like people feel like they don't realize that you're doing it for you. They almost feel like it's 
you're making a comment on them is no and they they feel rejected I would see families feel rejected by me when I say I I can't eat this because this has got ghee in it and that's clarified butter and that comes from a cow and it should have gone to its baby and not me and they feel like it's no I'm not criticizing you but that's how they feel they take it as if you're yeah, and it's it's tough. It's tough. and it's I can see why some people just want to think about it. Then they go, "This is too hard." Because I think there's a lot of those moments where we all have to learn this, right? Being a part of these systematic injustices, but we take it personally. Like someone says, yeah. "Oh, did you know what you just said actually is racist? It mm-hmm. has racist undertones," and that person might know that from vernacular. That's not excusing racism, but I'm just saying there are these things where it's, these are systematic things that have been ingrained in us. So you don't actually, that takes pressure off too. I think when you realize that you can make a difference and you can personally show up, but it's not your fault. The animal agriculture industry exists and you rely on animal products. I'm not blaming the, my family for that, but if they're in that mindset, still people put their guards up. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just being mindful and making sure you get that across to them as well, because they don't know that they don't they don't know. I I remember I mean, I I don't remember the exact words, but I remember reading somewhere that the easiest way to brainwash somebody is to make them feel like they made that choice. That's the best way to to make people feel like they chose something when actually it wasn't a choice. I found this quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, because I'm just thinking of all the people that argue, like all the triggered men on my Instagram yeah. and that want to tell me I'm going to die soon of osteoporosis or I should eat a steak. I look like I'm dying or whatever else lovely things people decide to say to me tomorrow that they think they've chosen this yeah. way of eating, but they have not chosen that at all. They've actually never been forced to give it a second thought. That's so interesting. Yeah. I remember reading somewhere that the average human being learns critical thinking from the age of four to 11, mm. depending on the human being. When are you? When do you start consuming animal products? Before the age of four, definitely milk you start um, drinking. You start wow. drinking cow's milk, usually after you're weaned off your mother's milk. And then usually by the time you're four or five, you're definitely eating solids. So your chances are you're eating chicken. eating. Yep. So you are getting indoctrinated in something before you even learned to critically think. Wow. So it's not your fault at all. And it's getting that across to people as I'm not blaming you. And, yes. and almost using yourself and saying, I was there myself. I, I always say that to anybody. It's just, I will never, ever judge you for not being vegan. I was non-vegan for longer than I've been vegan. I've been vegan yep. coming up to 12 years. But I'm a 45-year-old woman. So right. you do the, the math there. Do you know what I mean? I've been <laughs> non-vegan longer than I've been vegan. So who the hell right. am I to judge somebody? I always come from that place. And that usually softens them. Not always. Some people are just like already taken up a position. There's nothing you can do with those people. But just disentangle yourself from that. Right. But yeah, it's tough. But don't ever. I'm, I'm going to die trying to help people see that what they're doing is not only harmful to other beings and the planet it's harmful to them it's actually hurting them as well but do it in a way that makes them feel like I'm not judging them because I I think it was a friend of mine that said be the vegan that you would have wanted to meet when you weren't vegan and that's what you should aim to be yeah that's really nice to put yourself in that position again Sometimes I definitely, listeners have heard me talk about this, definitely went through that quote unquote angry vegan phase, which I think is completely valid because when you learn about systems of oppression, anger feels like the right response. Yeah. And that's okay as long as you don't get stuck in it, I think. But I definitely had that moment where I was like, holy shit, it's all connected. I was already a sociologist and social justice master's background. So I had, but I had not connected it to food. And so all of a sudden I was like, guys, listen to me. I have figured it out. And when I'm telling people in my life what they should do, turns out they didn't. Hey there, it's me. If you're digging this conversation so far around conscious living in this episode and you're feeling inspired to make change, that's literally why I'm here. If you want sustainable ways to be sustainable, you hear eco-friendly or green and wonder if you're doing it right. You want to make your diet more earth-friendly by going vegan. You want to live a more connected life, but you're not even sure what that means. No judgment. It is possible to feel excited about making changes to make a difference in the world every single day with your choices, 
to go vegan and stay vegan without feeling like you're missing anything or to learn how to make good choices for the planet without feeling stressed. I help folks who are ready to make changes in their life that support their health and the world around them through supportive coaching, practical education, and steps that make you enjoy the process. If that's you, email me at consciouslycarly at gmail.com and let's chat. Back to the episode. Love that. No, they don't because it's, um, I heard a phrase recently, what was it called? Sunk cost fallacy. Mm. Have you heard of that? Mm-mm. So this is a phenomenon that happens when I usually see it with people who have been conned. So what happens is, say they've been they've been duped and someone's taken a load of money. They said there was like an investment, but it, there was no investment. They're just taking the money. But right. then what was interesting is when the police are following it up, they'll find out that person then's made a second or even a third payment to them. And they'd be like, why did you do that? You've, when they're recounting and taking taking their story and writing it down, they'll, they'll say something like, yeah, I thought there was something weird after the first time because... So they're like, why did you then carry on? But th- that's what they mean by sunk cost fallacy. This is It's a phenomenon. It's once someone is embedded into a strategy, even when there is evidence is showing them that they're wrong, because they've already invested into it, they then go through this whole, but I've already invested. In, so they have to make it right. And they have to force themselves to believe that this way is the right way. Even wow. when the evidence is showing them to the contrary. And like I said, what it, what it tends to happen with people who have been conned in that they'll be conned repeatedly by the same person. And they would have misgivings. And yet they're still paying this person because it's almost like it's too painful for them to think of the money that they've already lost. So therefore, they then throw good money over or through bad. And it's it wow. makes more logical sense, but it's actually it's a phenomenon. It's called sunk cost fallacy. But I think this extends beyond just money and in terms right. of our thinking and our beliefs as well. If, if you're in your 30s, for example, and you spent your life, say you're, you consider yourself a healthy person. So you've been like, I only eat white meat. Uh, I only eat fish and like all these things. And I eat eggs, but I only eat the whites. I never eat the yolk. You do all these healthy things. And they're pasture raised, grass fed. and Yeah, grass fed and all that kind of stuff. And then someone comes along and says, actually, it's all, you know, it it doesn't matter how organic or fresh and grass fed and fair trade and all that stuff it is. Your body is actually, your intestines are designed like a herbivore. So basically the best egg in the world is still going to cause problems for your intestines. Suddenly, all that belief, then that is 30 plus years of them being healthy. You're just poo pooing that straight away. Yeah. That's going to make them go, no, go away. I don't want to listen to you. Let me just close my ears to what you're saying. That's going to make them react because now they have to think everything that they've done before was wrong. Yeah. And that's painful. So that's when you just want to go, no, even though the evidence is right there. I'm going to not listen to it. I'm going to carry on and do even more of the stuff that I was doing before. So something we come up against all the time and understanding it will make you feel, certainly makes me feel better when I get that reaction from people instead of being like hurt or upset by it. I just go, right. oh, some fallacy. Okay, you're oh. not ready. Let me just walk away from you right now because I can see this is painful for you. So I'm just going to walk away. And then maybe one day when you're in a better place, we can talk again. But I'm kind to myself now because I realize that's what's happening. It's people have already, and, and I tend to find the older somebody is, the more right. likely they have this sunk cost fallacy because they've just been on the planet longer and been doing that thing for longer. Yeah, that's wild. So you got into, I guess we can blame and thank the cat, right? For changing the trajectory of yeah. your of your lifestyle, your mindset, everything. It sounds like it started with animals, but you also mentioned sustainability and you've mentioned health. So was it a domino effect for you then once you learned? Yeah, I think it happens to all of us vegans. Mm -hmm. You get into it. There tends to be three gateways, as I call them, either (laughs) animal rights or to do with climate change, sustainability, or to do with health. It tends to be one of It's all about me for my beginning. I was like, I need to feel better. There you go. But then once you're in here, you get to meet others and you start to learn from others. I think I'm in a very good position being a publisher. I have people. It's like my job to learn about new things all the time because I'm learning vicariously through my clients who are writing books. So I end up learning about their subject really well. So certainly being a publisher has fast tracked me 
Mm. In my understanding of what is ethical, what is sustainable, what is truly plant-based, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I would say now, I would say it's interesting when people ask me, it's like, why are you vegan? And originally I would say vegan for the animals, but I would now say vegan for humans because I now can make the link between the way we box up animals, like I said, and the correlation to racism and misogyny and homophobia and all the isms that we don't like and the way we treat people. I found it really interesting and painful to see a tweet from one of the Israelis a couple of weeks ago talking about Hamas as animals. And I remember thinking, even animals shouldn't be treated that way. But people, I think of how a lot of cultures use the word animal as a derogatory term for a human. They say, yes. oh, they say, oh, that guy's an absolute dog. Oh, he's, they, they were fighting like animals. They were, they, that's the lowest, obviously, these beings decades, don't mean anything. Decades, decades to refer to the masses of people of that are being erased by genocide as animals. And Yeah, and I'm thinking we shouldn't even be treating animals like that, never mind treating human beings as animals like that. So that's my belief that we need to, really change how we treat animals because only then will we change the way we treat each other it's Mm -hmm. as simple as that so i would say now i would say i'm vegan for the humans rather than the animals because we're never going to be able to get on with each other unless we become vegan it's as simple as that i love that i love that i'm working with an awesome lady at the moment in texas she's renee she is the world's first cattle ranch to animal sanctuary transition in Texas. She's based in Texas. Um, does, she does incredible work. She has an amazing nonprofit. Oh, and she basically, she bridges the gap between cattle because a lot of, there's issues. I mean, I, I, the, again, this a lot of vegans get very angry, understandable. We've all been there, but then some of them take it too far and it's just become an instant. They start boxing people up. So for yep. example, all cattle ranches are bad. Instead of thinking of them of these people who've been born into usually generations yes. of cattle ranchers, it's all they know. This is how they make money off the land. There is they no do. other way for them to make money from this land. Yeah. So they're basically stuck and there's and having someone like Renee, who's an ex-cattle rancher, she bridges that gap and she tells me stories and her book is all about her transition and what happened. But also the fact that all these cattle ranchers come to her and say, we would love to leave this business, but there's, we can't. What are we going to do? They get so many subsidies from the American government, which means this is their living. They're not, they're, there is no money to get them to transition into anything else. Right. You know, they would love to. They would love to. And they, they hear about, oh, this farm basically got this amazing grant and they've transitioned into mushroom farming. But that's one in a million chance. That, so they're basically someone, some great big impact investor decided to make a showcase of, of a right. farm and help them transition into mushroom farming. That's not going right. to happen on any kind of scale. Mm-hmm. The average cattle rancher can't suddenly go, oh, let's just do a mushroom farm now instead yeah. of let's sell all of our cows and do get into mushroom farming. And the American government is not giving subsidies to mushroom farming, I can tell you. They're not doing any subsidies at all to transition any farms at all. They want people to stay in this. There was, I remember, wasn't this about two years ago? There was, there was, I think about 18,000 cows were blown up accidentally in Texas, in Dimmit. That's where it's Dimmit in in Dimmit, Texas. If anyone wants to Google this, put in Dimmit, Texas cows and you'll find it horrific, especially if you're vegan. Don't look at the videos and the, and the images. Just read if you want to keep your sanity. But basically what happened, and this I found out from Renee, and she talks about this in her book, is there was this cattle ranch. There was about 18,000 cows in one place. Straight away wrong, 18,000 cows, lots of cows. I can't even wrap my head around it sometimes. I can't even, there's more number. cows. There were more cows than there are people living in Dimmit, Texas. That gives you an idea. They were all in this one place, this one under one roof, and there's this machine that goes around scooping up all of the cow poop. Because obviously, when you put 18,000 cows into one place, there's going to be a lot of cow poop. Yes. So basically, it's too much for a human being to go around scooping up the poop. So basically, it's a machine. <laughs> yeah. It's too much for a human to do. Straight away. So you basically got a, a machine that's going around scooping up this poop. It basically overheated. It was too much poop for it to scoop. 
it blew up and killed all the cows. Guess what the American government did to the to the farmer? Gave them a ton of money to buy more cows and set them up again. With the, exactly the same thing to happen again. I mean, it's it's just horrible, isn't it? Thinking of those poor cows killed by their own poop, basically. Yeah, killed by killed by their own poop. So that's the reality that these cattle ranchers. What now? Now some vegans will blame that cattle rancher. They'll be like, "Oh my god, they're going to set it up again, and the same thing's going to happen again." What is that cattle rancher meant to do? Yeah. Like, what is that cattle rancher meant to do? I mean, they're not going to get any money to transition into doing something else. Right. This is they're stuck into it. So she's amazing. And she's basically the bridge between the farming community and veganism and animal rights and that sort of thing. So I do feel very lucky because I'm working with these people and then I learn their stories vicariously through their books. Mm. And so I think, but yeah, this is, we, I say I'm vegan for humans. I'm vegan for farmers, you know, even the farmers inside animal agriculture, because if you actually spoke to animal agriculture, if you actually spoke to farmers inside animal agriculture, if you tell them straight away you're a vegan, you're, they're going to straight away be like hostile towards you. But if they don't know you're vegan, and sometimes I can speak to them without them knowing I'm vegan, you'll be amazed how many of them actually open and say, I'd love to get out of this. I'd love to yeah. do something different. I don't want to do this. This is hard work and they don't actually get paid all that much, but they're stuck in it. This is what they do. They don't know anything else. It's now going to cost them a lot of money to retrain and find a new career. Some of them are well into their 40s, 50s, 60s. It's not now their time to do it. We there's, I mean, Renee tells me there's cattle ranchers now who are in despair because the next generation, their children don't want to do it because yep. they've gone off to university. Some of them are now vegan or vegetarian. They definitely don't want a cattle ranch. And they're like, I don't know what to do with my, what am I going to do with all this land and all my cows? What am I going to do with it? And they're stuck. And there's nothing they can do, but they get no sympathy from animal activists or vegans or anything like that. Yeah, I would say now I'm vegan for humans, more so even than animals. Love animals to death. Right. But I would say I'm vegan for humans now. I can't wait to read that book, first of all, and hope to connect with Renee in the future because that's incredible. And I love that what you're pointing out, at least to me, seems like the reminder that it takes individual change plus systematic change. Yeah. And, And ganging up together. Stop seeing other people as the enemy. They're not, farmers are not the enemy. They're stuck in that system as well. Okay, the the enemy is the government that they put in place that trap people, whether they're trapping farmers into carrying on and not being able to leave animal agriculture, whether they're trapping the average human being, as I said before, who don't even start critically thinking until at the earliest at the age of four and indoctrinating them into eating things before they can critically think about what they're eating. It's a system that's preying on all of these people. Right. And what they don't want and what they do very well is keeping us separated, because if we all work together, they'd be screwed. <laughs> that's what that's it is. It. So they that's work very hard. The at line. Keeping us yes, yeah. it's so true, because I've shared this story before on here, but I was I joined a few, Lord help me, Facebook groups oh for God. about <laughs> oh God. different different vegan ones when I was like, I should be promoting my podcast in some of these groups that pop up. So most of them are fine. One of them I got kicked out of like pretty immediately. Oh, what did you do? <laughs> I have to answer a question when you get in one or two. And one of them was like, would you buy, I'm paraphrasing, would you buy animal products for a family member or would you buy something and my mom, it was the example was right in front of me. My mom had happened to be had a cold and she had asked for, I don't know, something, a pizza or it's like a comfort food that she wanted that I was going to buy for her because she was sick. And that's a choice I made. I do what I can to only buy vegan stuff when I do like what I can. But I made a choice that day that she needed something she didn't feel good. And so I said, yeah, I think once in a while, if, if, if I'm caring for someone and they need nutrients, now's not the time for me to give them the speech. And it's, not only that, not only is that not the time to give them a speech, it means in future, they're not going to listen to you because you they're going to see you as someone who's unsympathetic, yeah. someone who didn't listen to them, who was pushing your agenda instead yeah. of putting, so you're hampering your chances of speaking to them in the future as well. You know, I got this long response from one of the admins about why I shouldn't be in the group. 
and about how I don't practice what I preach and that I'm basically going to hell. And I was just like, cool. So don't we have the same goal? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they don't realize that they're not really helping matters at all. That They perpetuate that kind of vegan that non-vegans don't want to meet and get upset by straight away. And they perpetuate that and make it difficult for the rest of us who are trying to bridge that gap and talk to people. And they don't realize they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I so appreciate this conversation because it is um, such a good reminder. I think, you know, we're recording this in November of 2023. There's a lot happening. There's always a lot happening in our world, but specifically right now, the conversation about vegan for the human, like for humans and for oppression is just more and more on my brain. And I've been thinking and brainstorming about how to bring that into my content more. Yeah. Because it is what I truly believe. And I've, I know I've had, I've worked with a business coach and have realized, yeah, I've been a little nervous to scare certain people off, but it's also the reminder of those aren't the people that are ready to listen or work with you. Exactly. And you can, you, it's amazing how you can say quite tough stuff, but if you say it in a way that doesn't make a person feel that they're at fault. Right. You can say quite tough stuff and people will be amazed how people will listen to you. Right. If you always make sure that person, you say things like, I was there as well. I know what this feels like. I did this. If you always talk in terms of things that you've done wrong unwittingly, then you'll be amazed people are are much softer because they realize they're not being blamed. So, yeah, I think you can actually go quite. Yeah, you can do. You can. I remember having a conversation. This is a number of years ago with a neighbor of mine who she was she's passed away now. But she back then she was in her late 80s. Um, So she was getting on and she would always call me and my family. We were on one corner and she's on another corner. And she also always causes the nice little colored family. Now, that was a term back then was acceptable, but it's not a term that you would use now in the UK or in the US. It means a completely different thing in South Africa, by the way, and it can be used. Yeah, it's yep. a, it's, It means a, a different thing in, in South Africa. But certainly in the UK and the US, coloured is not something you would use. So I remember somebody overhearing and getting really upset at this lady and then getting upset at me because I stuck up for this lady. I was like, look, she doesn't know, okay? And then she, this person felt upset because they'd stuck up for me but the point and then I explained to them is okay so I've not maybe it's my fault that I've not I've not corrected you but I was worried about whether you would get upset by being corrected but it's not a term that we use anymore because colored implies that people are actually white at one stage and some people got colored in or something like that it's more likely that the right or the way around it's more likely that Africa was our birthplace so if anything people went out and got whiter yeah, people got wider. That kind of makes more sense, really. Um, and she was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. Do you know what I mean? When you make people feel like they're not at fault, it's like your generation, that is the word you use for people yeah. who are not white. So there's nothing wrong with that. And when you come out, it's amazing how people go, and then they're willing to actually make some changes and go, oh, okay, now I know. Whereas if you, that, what that lady was, bless her, she was trying to stick up for me. This was another neighbor. Right. But she came at it in a very accusatory way. And thank God I stopped her. First of all, because this lady's elderly, so I didn't want her upset. And secondly, what probably would have happened, she probably would have dug her heels in then and said, yeah. oh, Matali's never had a problem with me calling her that. So why are you sticking your nose in? Right. Can you see what I mean? And then you take up a position. So yeah. it's all about how you broach things with people. I know it's hard. I sometimes lose it. Some people are just very annoying, aren't they? And it's easy to lose it with them. We're human. Feel, <laughs> yeah, we're all human. We all sometimes go, oh, my God, you've got such a punchable face. I'm going to punch you with my words. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We've all been there. We know what it feels like. Yeah. But try as much as you can to take a few breaths and just go, okay, this person doesn't know what they're doing. Because, I mean, maybe I'm being naive here, Carly, but I do inherently believe that people are not born evil. We don't really set about to hurt people. We just do things unwittingly and we just create this huge amount of collateral damage without even realizing because of the systems that we're born into. Yep. I so appreciate being able to talk about these things and say, yeah, it's frustrating. And also 
say there are ways to have these conversations. Again, it's not the either or. They will, sometimes these conversations are hard, but just because they're hard or maybe challenging or you need to learn doesn't mean to avoid them altogether. Exactly. There's a really good, do you watch The Good Place? I did. It's one of my favorite TV shows of the last decade. I absolutely adored it. I've always said that if I ever get the chance to get back into education and do a degree, I'd do a degree in philosophy. And watching The Good Place made me feel like I had a degree in philosophy. I learned so much about all the different philosophers and what their thoughts are. And I was like, damn, if I ever do this degree, I'll have a head Taking start. Notes. I, like, <laughs> I, I did. Actually, I was like, it was, it's an entertainment show. It's a comedy. And yet I was making notes on my phone. I was like, I need to look up this philosopher. Yes. I loved it. But there was one episode, I forget the name of the episode. It was my, by far my most favorite episode. I think it was in the third, was it the second or third series? It wasn't in the first one. And it was about, they'd figured out, so this is where they'd figured out that no one was going to heaven and hadn't gone to heaven for about 300 or 400 years. And they're like, hang on a minute, how can that be? Before that, there was, they, they had this, you've seen the brain, you've yep, seen the program. Yep, you know yeah. But for people who watch, who are listening to this, who maybe haven't watched it, basically this lady ends up where she thinks she's in heaven. So she dies, shopping trolley accident, I, I believe it was, <laughs> death by shopping trolley. And she in what she believes is in heaven. But then she realizes she should be in hell. And basically she's ta- accidentally accidentally taken somebody else's place who has the same name as her. But she doesn't want to go to hell. So she now conspires to stay in heaven. I'm not going to spoil the rest of it because it's brilliant. If you haven't watched it and you love comedy, but with a philosophical bent and intelligence bent, go and watch The Good Place, one of my favorite programs of the last 10 years. But in this one particular episode, they figured out that no one's going to heaven for about four or 500 years. And I thought before that, there'll be people, basically it was a point system and you lived your life. And then depending on how many points you got, you would either end up going to heaven or you end up going to hell. There you go. And then up until about four or 500 years ago, there were people going to heaven and people going to hell, which is how it should be. But then around about 400 or so years ago, it stopped and everyone now was going to hell. And the question was, why? What's going on? Are you telling me everyone just went evil 400 years ago? That can't happen. So what's happening? And they realized that what happened was 400 years ago, you get, that's what you had, the industrial age. And when the industrial age happened, basically we stopped just living off the land and we started assigning ourselves jobs. So people did certain things and they didn't see what was going on elsewhere. And there was this beautiful story of, and basically they worked it out, that there was this boy 400 years ago who, just before 400 years ago, He was going to his grandma who was ill and he wanted to get us some flowers. So basically what he did is he went to the fields, picked up some flowers, went and gave it to his his mother and then ended up getting five good points to go to heaven um, because he did this amazing thing. And then juxtaposed that story with somebody now, again, a young boy was going to visit his grandmother and his grandmother is ill. So he goes and wants to get some flowers. But you can't now just go and get flowers because now it's trespassing because if you pick flowers up in in a national park, you can't do that. So he goes to a florist and he buys a bunch of flowers. And and then he goes and gives these flowers to his grandmother. Pretty much almost identical story to what happened four or 500 years ago. But now he's got five negative points and he's going to hell. And basically worked out because these flowers were picked by an immigrant work that wasn't paid enough. Ah, It was flown across the world. So it had a carbon imprint that he didn't know about. And because of that, he's now going to hell. He got five minus points. Because he's um, because of that. And then this boy who did the exact same thing a few centuries ago got plus points to go into heaven. And I thought that was my favorite episode because that kind of, in that 20, 20 minute episode, explains where we are as human beings right now in that we are unwittingly causing so many terrible things to happen on this planet and we don't even know about it. We're literally just going about our lives, buying things, consuming things, and we don't know. So if you come from that viewpoint, it may, you, not only does it make you feel better about humanity and realize that we're just not all evil, but yeah. also you can approach non-vegans with a sense of empathy in that sense of not what you do. And even as vegans, we're doing things that we don't even realize it. Right now, we're doing things that's causing a negative impact somewhere and we don't realize. And we've got to be kind to ourselves and to others. Yes. I love that. I love that example too. I'm going to go and watch that episode again. Now. I was so just I, saying, now I, think I love it. 
gonna start rewatching The Good Place tonight. Is, <laughs> is there anything else you want to share with listeners? If you are interested in writing a book, I do. I mainly work with people who do have a big mission to get out there. Yeah. I mean, the big thing I would say is if I don't work with people who want to write a book because it's on their bucket list. Right. Okay. I tend to, yeah, it tends to be very egotistical. It's all about, I want to talk about me. That's not what it's about. I work with people who have a genuine mission out there. So someone like Renee, who really wants right. to get this, she wants to create legislative change in the U.S., First of all, she wants to stop the ridiculous subsidies that the American government give animal agriculture. That needs to stop. And then there needs to be funding regarding transitioning the farmers who want to transition out of that lifestyle. And she wants to. That's why she's writing a book. And it looks like if we play our cards right, she's in touch with Kip Anderson. So hopefully her book will be turned into a documentary as well which puts a lot of pressure on me to make sure we get this book done right. But yeah, people who have a true, whether it's plant-based health, maybe you've, I'm just working with a lady at the moment who's figured out a link between the issues that women face at menopause and animal products. So she really wants to help women understand that if you can't eliminate, if you just reduce your animal products, that's going to have an amazing effect on your um, menopausal symptoms and how you feel. So anyone like that, anyone has a mission that really needs to get other people to understand whether it helps them, helps other, other humans, helps non-human beings, helps the planet as a whole, get in touch and they I'd love to help you write a book. Perfect. All your information will be there so people can look you up, look what you're all about. I know they're going to want to. This conversation was just perfect, honestly. I so appreciate your perspective. And thank you. I've enjoyed this. It's been a good chat. And I'm going to go and start rewatching the good. I mean- if you're hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode of Consciously Clueless. And for that, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this new episode, and if you did, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or tag me and share in social media. Share this episode with others who may be interested in this topic. To get more resources, influence on topics covered, and bonus content, join the Consciously Clueless community over on Patreon at patreon.com slash consciouslycarly. And don't forget, if you need help living more consciously, let's work together. Email me today. See you next Wednesday for a new episode.